All right, grab the orange Bibles. You're going to need them. If you don't have a Bible, uh, man, we'd love for you just to take one of these orange ones. We buy them in bulk so we can give them away. We want people to be in God's Word. We're going to be in the early part of the entire book in the book of Genesis. And I want you to be ready for that. We need to be in God's Word. Lately, in my video feeds, you know, in social media, there's been a, a genre of video that's been showing up a lot. And probably because the algorithms have figured out that it's something that I like watching. And, uh, and what it is, is it's scammer payback. You ever seen any of these scammer payback videos? So there are people that what they do for their full-time job is they try to call gullible individuals, people maybe who don't know any better, and they tell them lies so that they can get a lot of their money, and sometimes like their life savings. And so it, it, tend, it tends to be that they call folks, you know, maybe who uh, are a little older and they don't know maybe about that they don't really need um, antivirus software for their computer, and they will, they will dupe them into this. And so there are some people, and what they do, they have video channels on YouTube. One of, <coughs> excuse me, one of them, his name is Jim Browning. The other one, his name's Scammer Payback. And what they do is they get these scammers back. And it is sweet justice. So they'll call the scammer, and they will disguise their voice, and they'll make it sound like they're you know, maybe grandma or grandpa or whatever. They'll disguise their voice, and then when the scammer tries to connect to their computer, they'll reverse the connection, and then they'll go in and they'll get access to their webcam and they'll take pictures of the person who usually is in Asia somewhere in some call center, I don't know. They'll take pictures of them. They'll hack into their social, their so, like, social media accounts. They'll delete all of their files. They'll get into their phone system, sometimes their security camera system. So you'll see like just a room full of people. All they do is dupe people out of their money. And so it's this sweet, sweet victory. Not only is it just impressive in the first place, but how many of us at some point in time have received a phone call from someone trying to scam you out of money? Okay, listen, if you don't have your hand raised, I hope that you didn't give them any of your money when they called, you know, because you, you don't need the antivirus. And there's, there's nobody, there's no prince from Nigeria that's trying to give you their money. It, it's not real. It doesn't actually happen. Don't give money to anyone that you don't know. And even then, and even then, listen, my grandma, who's like, God bless her heart, she's 95, 97. A few years ago, she got a phone call from my brother saying, Grandma, I got arrested. I need you to bail me out of jail. My brother is as straight-laced as I am. He's an elder in his church, and my grandma, I'm so proud. Way to go, grandma. You did a great job, grandma. She calls my sister-in-law and says, hey, is this true? And of course, it wasn't true. So she, she wasn't. She wasn't scammed by them. But these people will do that. They will impersonate you. And there's a ring of folks in Canada that took $2 billion, billion from citizens doing this kind of thing. This guy gets them back. Jim Browning like, is so satisfying to watch because these people start sweating when their files are deleted. And now they like, plaster their picture all over YouTube. It's wonderful. Why is it so satisfying to watch? Because we hate liars and cheats. Like it's the worst feeling when you've been cheated, when you've been lied to. Even liars and cheats hate liars and cheats. We're in a series where we're looking at a chapter in the book of Hebrews. It's a chapter that's been 
personally very meaningful to me, and I've referred to it so many times as I've been in discipleship relationships with people, as they're processing through their lives and what it means to follow after God, and what do I do when things feel like they're off or not turning out the way that we want. And Hebrews 11 is so fascinating because it's often called the the hall of faith. In other words, the author is saying these are people across scripture who God has commended for being very faithful. But what's fascinating is it's not because um, it's not because their lives, like they're super successful or they accomplished a lot, because many of them didn't. <laughs> Rahab was mentioned, she was a prostitute. Like she didn't accomplish a lot, but she had faith and God commended her. And it wasn't because everything turned out well in their lives. In fact, for me, one of the principal messages of this whole chapter is that oftentimes we'll think, well, God, I will follow you so that my life will turn out a certain way. But then what we're doing is we're just trying to pull the puppet strings on God. And when things don't turn out the right kind of way, you know, we have, we have a twisted relationship with suffering. And when something bad happens to us, we think, well, God must not be pleased with me. I must have sinned. I must have done something wrong. But in fact, God looks at these heroes of the faith and he commends them oftentimes when they chose to believe, when they chose to have a believing loyalty, when they chose to believe that which they could not and would not ever fully understand, even when it does not turn out well. And God looks and says, wow, they actually understand my heart and my mind. That's a powerful message for me. So far, what we've done is we've looked at Abraham, we've looked at Sarah, we've looked at Moses. My dad led that last week. These are people that we have kind of held up and said, these are heroes uh, heroes of the faith. The challenge with heroes is we hold them up and we think they're made out of something different than, than us. They're supernatural, but they're not. They're actually super ordinary. And when you start looking at their lives in a little bit more scrutiny and you read the accounts of how they actually lived and what actually happened in their lives, you start to see that these are tremendously flawed people. So like Abraham and Sarah, because they wouldn't trust God's promise for them, they just tried to cut corners and and they ended up using Hagar to their ends and, and it just caused hurt and damage and destruction and And Moses, you know, Moses is like the great patriarch of the Jewish nation. Man, he he was surrounded by a bunch of idiots that did nothing but complain, and it just stirred up in him this latent anger that was an ongoing problem for him. So we see that they actually have some significant challenges, and what we're going to do today is we're looking at another one of these individuals in the hall of faith, and this is Jacob. This This is the illustration that Chris did for us, is the story of Jacob. And what I want to do this morning, we're going to be mostly in the book of Genesis, but I want to look first at how does Hebrews 11 commend Jacob? This is what it says. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. That's it. That's what he's commended for. And I'm thinking, man, that would be great if in my life, I, mean, I, think, I think I can do that. I can bless my grandchildren. I can worship as I lean on a staff. Like, count me in. I, I want to be commended as faithful for that. So why is it that he's called faithful for something so seemingly insignificant? What I want to do is let's just look and let's meet this character of Jacob and learn his story this morning. Jacob is significant because he was a part of the lineage of Abraham. 
God met with Abraham uh, and said, hey, I, I'm going to promise you that someday you're going to be a great nation. Three things. You're going to be a great nation. You're going to have a promised land. And then all the world will be blessed through you. All of the people groups will be blessed through you. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. And so the lineage then of Abraham is very important. And actually, I've got a family tree here. I made this up. Um, and you'll see some stellar stock <laughs> photography that I used for the different characters here, right? So Abraham, Sarah, they have Isaac. Isaac then has Jacob. Stay away from Esau. He looks like a shifty character right there. Um, Jacob then ends up having 12 sons. These 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Through one of those sons, Judah becomes King David, the greatest king that Israel ever had. From the line of David came eventually Jesus of Nazareth. We're a Christian church. It's because of Jesus. So Jacob is a, a critical part of this. But goodness, when you stop to look at Jacob and actually his life story, what you see is that he's actually a really messed up dude. And it shows up for the first time upon his birth. And that's what I want to start at looking at. So open your Bibles to page 16. This is going to be Genesis chapter 25. Page 16, Genesis 25, verses 19 through 34. This is what it says. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. That's what we just saw. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, a late bloomer, I suppose. He married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padam Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean. Now, let me just give you a bit of advice. If ever you don't know how to pronounce things in Scripture, say it quickly with confidence and people won't know that you don't know any better. That's what I just did, okay? Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Just, just like Sarah and Abraham. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies, plural, okay? The babies. So she was having twins, says they jostled each other within her. This is actually really telling because her pregnancy was a foretelling of how much turmoil these two brothers would have. The original Hebrew literally said the children smashed themselves inside of her. Now, we like to soften it a little bit in the New International Version, but that's what it, what it says. They were already at it. And what, is, what does she do? She says, why is this happening to me? Which, why is it, by the way? We ask God to do something for us. Like, God, help my kid get into this school. And as soon as they get into school, we're like, oh, we have to drive them to school every single day. She asks for the children. God provides. Now she's struggling with what's going on to her. What do you do when that happens? What we should all do. She inquires of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And then listen to this. The older will serve the younger. Because in that culture, the oldest son particularly was the most strategic. And we'll talk about why that is. That, that's, that's who you want to set up to win is the oldest son. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. First to come out was Red. And his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. And that's the first time we're introduced to Jacob. What is he doing? He's grasping at his brother's heel. In fact, the name Jacob means heel grabber. Heel grabber. And he stuck with that name for the rest of his life. 
Why is it that there are things that happen to us that we get stuck with before we were even born and we don't even have a choice? And he was born grasping at the heel, trying to get ahead. In this culture, to be firstborn was the most important because they would have special rights, they would have special privileges, they got a double portion of the inheritance, and it was for a reason, because they didn't have social security. Right? The government didn't take care of you when you get old. How do you take care of yourself? You have a lot of kids. And so the oldest child had the responsibility of being over the household, number one. Number two, they were, had responsibility to care for the aging parents. So as parents, you kind of want, you know, you want to be taken care of, right? So they got a double portion, the one who was the firstborn. They had more leadership, they had more honor, there was material wealth there. So no wonder then, no wonder, it was just kind of inside of Jacob, it was like this me first mentality. If I could have just been born five seconds earlier, things would have been changed totally for me. Listen, this stuff, like it's inside of us. If you don't believe in original sin, the, the, the idea that it's is born into you, like a sin nature is a part of you, why, you know, you don't have to teach a kid to say, mine, I want to go first. I want that. That's mine. You don't have to teach a kid to do that. They do that instinctively. You have to teach a kid to say, please, thank you. Here you go first. Because it's just inside of us. We always put ourselves first. I put myself first. I want to eat where I want to eat, when I want to eat it. Like, I want to do things my way. I want to put myself first. But here's the question. How can we have a God-first focused in a me-first kind of world? How is it possible to seek the, the kingdom of God when it's a, our nature is to be me-first? Marketing tells us me-first. Is that even possible? Because Jesus, this is what he does. Man, he, he flips things upside down. Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, because listen, there are the disciples, they were arguing, hey, which one of us gets to be the most important? I want to sit by your right hand in heaven, Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, you don't know what you're asking for, because in my kingdom, in God's kingdom, you know how it works? It's the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. I started teaching my kids that at an early age. I want to sit in the front seat. <laughs> Guess what? You're in the back seat. <laughs> I'd flip it around. And then they got smart about it. And they'd say, I want to sit in the back seat. And they caught me there, I guess. Jesus flips it around. He says, if you want to be great, you actually have to become a servant of all. The last shall be first. The first shall be last. God's kingdom is an upside down kind of key kingdom. God would say a me first mentality like this just does not work because you lose yourself in the process of putting yourself first. Jesus says it this way. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world? You're going to put yourself where you're going to strive for it. You're going to keep trying to advance yourself, but you forfeit your soul. He says, because listen, when you put yourself first, you always lose a piece of yourself in the process. This is what happened to Jacob. Jacob, me first, Jacob, heel grabber, Jacob, for his own advantage, Jacob. He ends up, he ends up ripping and tearing at his family. He ends up screwing up his family. And in fact, in addition to heel grabber, Jacob means deceiver. Became kind of an idiom or slang within their culture. If you wanted to call someone a deceiver, you'd call him a heel grabber. So next time someone deceives you, you can just zing them with, hey, you're a heel grabber. They won't know what you're talking about. 
This is what happens uh, right in that next account, in the first chapter we looked at here. It says, Isaac was 60 years old. He's an old dude when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay home among the tents. So God prophesies, listen, Jacob is going to rule over Esau, but if you look at them from the surface, what do you observe? You observe Esau, he's a warrior. Esau can field dress a deer, take down a boar. Esau was rugged, he was ruddy, he was handsome, he was competent, he would have been featured on Dude Perfect, right? He could do everything, right? He was the part of the leader when you looked at him. But Jacob, Jacob was content to stay amongst the tents. Here's the translation. He stayed at home watching Downton Abbey and call a midwife. Is that what it's called? I think I got it right. Watch the, watch the milk. I always get it wrong. He was a delicate mama's boy. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm just saying, when you look at them two, you would say one of these is the strategic one to invest in. The other one's not. That kind of sizing up is exactly what the parents did. This is what it says that Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And, and as you read the text, it's real apparent that the, the parents start taking sides, which what's the number one rule of parenting when you have multiple children? No favorites, right? At least you don't say it out loud, right? You don't ever admit to that. What I do with my children is every time I'm with any of them, I just say, you're my favorite something. Which is my favorite, right? You don't, you don't let them know that. But early on, this is what we see. There's this division between, uh, between Isaac and Rebekah. We see Jacob is this deceitful guy. And this is the crux of his problem. He's deceiving, he's conniving, he's cunning, he's weasley. In fact, we can just call him Jake the snake. Throughout the rest of this, he's just a snake. He's the scam caller. He's the scam caller that wants the shortcut. He's the scam caller that would rather take than work for himself. This is what happens. Very next verse. It says, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He says to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I am famished. That's why he's also called Edom. And Jacob replied, uh, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and he left. So Esau despised his birthright. Now, I think the language of uh, I'm dying here is a little over-dramatized here. Um, but you know, Esau, he wasn't just a little hungry. He was, he was hangry. How many of you have ever gotten a hangry before? You got to have the chips in the queso. Only two of you. Wow. Okay. Okay. Three. All right. You get, you get hangry, right? You got to have it. That's where he was. Sell me your birthright. And so I think, I think Jacob just kind of like throws it out there. Doesn't know if it's going to stick. Uh, okay. Well, uh, sell me your birthright first. And he takes the bait. He literally Trades his inheritance. What good is an inheritance to me if I'm dying? And so he, he takes the bait and he trades. Jake is a deceiver, but Esau's an idiot. <laughs> he is. He's like only living in the moment. He's a fool. I'll sell all of my inheritance for a bowl of ramen. Like that's a ridiculous trade. He can't see past tomorrow. He was in the here and now. I want what I want, when I want it, and who cares about tomorrow? I'll just take care of that then. I'm just going to kick the ball down the, down the road. 
That was him. So he swears an inheritance. And it's almost like he has this moment of tremendous clarity all of a sudden. Oh, my word, what did I just do? And now every time he thinks about his future, every time he thinks about his father and his family and who's going to lead this and how am I going to provide for myself in the future, he just starts to resent the birthright. Becomes a source of bitterness for him. And it just, just hangs over him as he progresses through life. And years go by, and now the boys are in their 40s. They should know better. And another, another time when Sneaky Jake the Snake, he shows up, and he rears his ugly head. Because before he had deceived his brother, now he's about to deceive his father. Isaac is super old. He's like over 100 years old. He can't see very well. And so what he says to Esau, his favorite son, he says, I want you to go catch my favorite game. I want you to make me a meal, and then I'm going to give my blessing to you. But Rachel excuse me, Rebecca heard this happening. And she says, Jacob, 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 come here, come here, come here. I just overheard this conversation. I got an idea. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go take these goat, this goat and then bring me the meat and then, and then I'm going to cook a meal and you're going to go and you're going to get the blessing instead of your brother. Genesis chapter 25, page 18, just two pages to the right. Says, then Rebecca took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. Like, how hairy was this guy? You know, it's crazy. Then, then she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread that she made. He went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Now listen. He had a decision to make right here. And listen to how it plays out. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Please sit up, eat some of my game so that you can give me your blessing. And Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? He's with it. He's with it for an old guy. The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He didn't recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him, kissed him, and when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him. Now this is where Jacob in his 40s, man, he, he fell hard. I want you to think about the cultural implications here because in this culture, you don't disrespect your father. You certainly don't deceive him. You never talk back highly patriarchal culture. It was an insane thing for him to do what he just did. Jacob had deceived his brother. Now he deceives his father by pretending to be who he isn't. Not only did he steal his brother's birthright, but now he steps in and steals his blessing as well, something that was so significant to the people at the time. And everything that, that Esau was due as the firstborn was taken away through Jacob, his lying, 
his scheming, his controlling, his manipulating. This was the equivalent like a scam caller not only calling you, but like a scam caller calling their own 80-year-old father and taking him for all he's worth. Like it's disgusting. But it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating how life kind of catches up with you because what happens is when Esau finds out what just happens, he is understandably irate. And he vows, as soon as my dad dies, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And so Rachel, excuse me, Rebecca, says to Jacob, hey, you need to get out of here. Why don't you go hang out with my relative? And so Jacob flees. And he goes and he hangs, he hangs out with Laban, his relative, and he starts working for him. And he notices that Laban has two daughters. One of them, Leah, is a little homely looking. The other one, Rachel, is smoking hot. Which one do you think he fell for? He falls for Rachel. And so he goes to Laban and says, let me have your daughter as my wife. And, and Laban says, OK, but you got to work seven years for me first. That's, a, that's, quite a, that's quite an investment. So he works for seven years for Laban. And then he says, it's time for me to get married to your daughter. And Laban goes, OK. He probably throws him a big feast. I imagine he probably gets him drunk. And then that night, Laban sneaks Leah in instead of Rachel. Jacob wakes up in the morning. I, don't, I just don't know how this happens. But he wakes up in the morning, finds out that the deceiver has now been deceived. And he goes to Laban, and he goes, what gives? And Laban's like, I didn't tell you which daughter. I just said, hey, daughter. He's kind of a smart guy. You know, I'm going to get rid of the homely looking one first, I guess. And so now he says, if you want Rachel, you can work for another seven years. And he does it. He works 14 years to get what he wanted. The deceiver, the conniver, had been connived. He had been deceived. And out of Jacob came all of those tribes, but I want you to see the brokenness that's there because they, were, they, were, they, were, they came from four different mothers, Rachel and Leah and their servants. There's all sorts of brokenness. This guy is full of deceit. The family's torn apart. There's, there's dysfunction. There's hate. And ultimately, that ends up spilling into like, like there was all sorts of strife with his children. The older brother sell off Joseph. That whole story comes because well, they were all different families. It was just crazy. It was a hot mess. And if you're asking yourself, how does someone like that get listed in the Hall of Faith? You're not alone. Like he should be punished. He shouldn't be commended for that. Yet God puts him there, even when he's deeply flawed. Why? Listen, what we have to recognize is that it's never, it's never our lack of sin that makes us right or wrong with God. It's only ever our faith. And this is the great temptation. It's a temptation for me. I like to say, God, well, look at all the good things I've done for you. Or as I talk with people and I say, tell me about your faith and, you know, how do you know you're right with God? And Well, look, I'm not as bad as this person over here. Least, least I, least, you know, I'm, I'm not as bad as my brother-in-law. Or, and so they start comparing themselves, and it becomes about what we've accomplished. But this is what Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says. It says, for it is by grace that you are saved. It's by grace that God would look at you and say, you can be reconciled and right with me. It's by grace you are saved. This is, this is through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not by your own works, so that nobody can boast about this. 
It's only ever our faith, our believing loyalty that God ever commends. That was the one thing that Jesus was only ever impressed by. He was never impressed by power or wealth or by influence, but he was impressed by the simple-hearted, childlike faith. And that's what, that's what we're called to do. Something happens to Jacob that puts him on the trajectory of faith. And we see this happen. A couple chapters later, turn with me to page 24, Genesis chapter 32. And this is what happens. I mean, the whole Laban thing goes down. Now he's got both wives, and there's kind of a falling out with Laban. He decides he needs to leave where he's at, and he needs to go back home. But you know what the problem is? Esau. Esau promised, I'm going to kill this guy. And so he, he sets out, and he heads out with his whole household, like servants and flocks and herds, because God had favored him. And he's all his children, like gobs of children, and they're going with him. And he heads out, and he thinks, well, how am I going to play this so I know what I'll do? I'll send some gifts ahead of me. So he sends, like, here's some donkeys and goats. And hey, you go, go find Esau. Find out, is he mad at me or not? They send the gifts, and what they come back and they report is that, hey, Esau is sending 400 men to meet you in the wilderness. And at this point in time, Jacob is terrified. So what does he do? He just keeps sending people ahead of him. Keeps sending people ahead of him. And listen, listen to what happens here. Okay, Genesis chapter 32, verses 22. It says, that night Jacob got up, took his two wives, two female servants, 11 sons, crossed the ford of the Jabbok, because Benjamin hadn't been born yet. And after he sent them ahead across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. Why did he do this? Because Esau was on the other side of the stream. And he was terrified. He sends them all over first. He's hiding behind his wife's and his children, maybe if he sees that they're like really cute, then maybe he won't kill me. Verse 24, so Jacob, in the wilderness, was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that he was wrenched, and he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, and listen, he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with whom humans and have overcame Jacob said, please tell me your name. He replied, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it's because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. He's attacked in the middle of the night. He's getting ready to go see Esau. He's terrified. He's at this climax of his life where all of his past sins, he's, he's always been operating as Jake the deceiver He's been manipulating, he's been controlling, always running back to that same model of operation. I'm gonna do the most strategic thing. I'm gonna deceive people, I gotta get my own way. And now his past sins and his future hopes and dreams are at a crossroads. And then this random dude shows up in the wilderness in the middle of the night, starts to wrestle with Jacob. Like, how weird is that? They wrestle and they fight almost all night long. And this person is strong, but Jacob... They can't subdue Jacob. And so eventually, this person touches Jacob's hip and, and kind of wrenches his socket supernaturally. And all of a sudden, Jacob's like, I'm not dealing with a normal man here. 
This person actually in verse 28 is identified as God. In fact, many scholars and I agree would say that this is the pre-incarnated Christ. It's a Christophany as it would be called, like a theophany. It was that appearance of God, Christ. And Jacob's wrestling with him and he dislocates his hip. And I'm telling you, sciatic pain is no joke. And so he can't, he can't do the things that he always did before. He can't go back to his ways of scheming and conniving and cunning and lying. He can't scheme his way out of it. And he's just faced now. He's just undone. And so he finally just breaks. And, and God's like, hey, the morning's here. It's time to stop this. But Joseph says something that's so powerful. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let go. In my past, I've been struggling and I've been running after it. And I've been, I've been seeking blessings from, from every other way, from all these sources that will never satisfy me. But now, listen, I know I'm with the living God and I will not let him go. I've been holding on to heels my whole life. I've been, I've been holding on to seeking after this stuff. And now, and now I actually have the one who has the power to bless me in the first place. And I've been living in the shadow of bro my brother my whole life. And, and, and I've been living with, with deceiving my whole life. And now, now I'm about to meet him and I'm terrified and there's 400 men. What am I going to do? But now I'm holding on to one that's greater than Esau because he's the only one that can bless me. And Jacob, man, he didn't even understand everything about this guy that he was wrestling with. But he just said, I will not let him go. And God asks him his name. But it wasn't because he didn't know his name. It was because 21 years earlier, when Isaac asked him his name, he lied and he said, I am Esau. And God, God knew who he was, but he wanted to wait and hear him finally step into who he actually was. He needed to drop the facade. He needed to finally surrender before him. Like Jesus would say, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You need to actually surrender before God and, and drop the facade and say, this is actually who I am. And I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to run. I'm not going to use those ways anymore. I'm just going to come before you and I'm going to be vulnerable. And so he responds and he says, I am Jacob. I'm the heel grabber. I'm the deceiver. And I'm the one who's always been trying to put myself first. God says, you know, yeah, I, I see who you've pretended to be, but I'm going to tell you who you really are. And God gives him a new name. And remember, with a name is always an identity. And God says, you're no longer going to be known as Jacob. You're going to be known as Israel, which means triumphant with God. You've wrestled with them, but you're triumphant with God. See, Jacob had his identity and like who he always was, what he always ran to. Like I always have these patterns and I keep going back to these patterns in my life. And now he, he, he wrestled with God and he just dropped all of that. And he said, I'm not going to let go of you, God, until you bless me. And some of you have been wrestling with God and you've been shaking your fist at him and you've been asking questions 
You've been saying, God, why do, why do I keep running back to my anger? Why do I keep running back to you know, my, my diet issues? Why do I keep running back to pornography? Why do I keep running back to these relationships that never satisfy? And you've been wrestling with God. And, 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 and what the, the lesson that we pull out of all of this is don't tap out. Don't tap out. Don't give up until God finally meets you in that place, until he blesses you. And listen, I'm not talking about like bless you, like win the lottery, bless you. I'm talking you wrestle with God until you experience the peace and the presence and the provision and the promises of his spirit speaking to you in the quiet place and saying, I'm not going to define you by who you used to be, by, by the future that I'm going to give you. Don't tap out. You need to let go of your running, and you need to let go of your hiding. And you just, you just need to be surrendered before me, and I will bless you. Surrender is always the catalyst of God's blessing in our lives. And again, listen, this is not about whether you get the new car. This is not about material provision. This, this is about the spirit of God doing a deep work in you to redefine your operating system. See, because Jacob, his operating system was heel grabber. That's all he ever knew. God says, I'm going to give you a new operating system. And it's fascinating. When we looked at Hebrews 11, remember what Jacob was commended for? That he blessed the sons of Joseph and he worshiped as he leaned on his staff. In other words, he's an old man. And how has his heart changed? Well, it's interesting because Jacob had lots of sons and his oldest was Reuben. Reuben was an idiot, and Reuben ended up dishonoring his father by sleeping with his concubine. You've got to read the Bible. This stuff's all in there. Like, if you don't read it, you've got to read it. And so he dishonors his family. Reuben was the most strategic person to invest in. And Jacob refused to give the birthright and the blessing to Reuben. Instead, what he does is he blesses not even one of his sons. He blesses the son's of Joseph. Joseph, the technicolor dream coat, Joseph, that's that Joseph. And he has his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh is the older one, and typically what would happen is when a blessing was to be given, the greater blessing would come through the right hand, and the lesser blessing would come through the left hand. And so the right hand would go on Manasseh, the older one, and the left hand would go on Ephraim, the younger one. But as Jacob goes to give his blessing, he switches hands. And he gives the blessing on the younger son. Because he had finally learned to not seek the most strategic and not to do the thing that's always going to advantage him, but that God works and he's gratuitously good for no reason at all other than that he's simply good and he works through the humble and he works through the less than and he works through the foolish to impress the wise and he works through the broken in order to impress those who seem like they have it all together. In fact, that's God's upside down kingdom. And it says that he leaned on his staff in his old age and he just worshiped. I'm not going to wrestle with you, God. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to be old Jacob. I'm just going to worship. I'm just going to worship and I'm going to take on your character. But my prayer is that as we think about Jacob and as we think about these folks, we think about like Moses and Abraham and we see that there's some pretty messed up people 
I know you guys have done stuff. I've done stuff. I don't think any of us can like match what Jacob has done here. Like this is crazy. And David, we're going to study him next week. Don't miss this. He's even worse. And yet God, because he's rich in mercy, chooses to work with broken things to glorify himself. He turns ashes into beauty and he redeems and he restores and he renews when we're willing to lay down our arms, when we're willing to surrender before him, he says, I'm gonna meet you in this place. And it's not always gonna turn out the way that you want it to, but you're gonna experience my peace and you're gonna experience my presence and you're gonna experience my comfort. And my hope is that as we look at these folks, we can start to realize that you know they're made the same that I am. And if God can use broken people like that, maybe God can use me in my brokenness too. That's my prayer. Let's pray together. God, thanks for the lessons in, uh, with Jacob. Uh, Lord, I, I, I see a lot of myself in Jacob because I'm the deceiver. I'm the controller. I'm the liar. I've hurt people that I love. And I've let that part of me lead me in my life. God, but I've also tasted the sweetness of who you are when you come near the brokenhearted and when you respond to those who humble themselves before you. And God, thank you for that, that lesson that we see in this story. Help us, Lord, to walk in the middle of that. Lord, I, I pray for those people who, in this place, they've been wrestling with God and, and, and they don't understand all of the bits and pieces and how it all goes together and why their lives have played out the way that they played out and why they keep dealing with the same issues that they've dealt with in the past. God, would we just operate in this position, in this place of surrender before you, and would you meet us there? God, I'm so grateful for grace, that you don't define us by our worst mistakes, but you define us with the righteousness of Jesus and what he's done on our behalf, and when we believe in that, you call that faithful. Oh, my word, how good is the good news? How great is the gospel? Lord, let us be in awe of that and let us walk in that. Help us all to know that more deeply. God, you're doing works in the hearts of the men and women that call this place home. I've seen it, Lord, and I know that there are people that are struggling to believe, that are in the middle of the storms of their life, and their lives might feel an awful lot like Jacob's where things just kind of come to this climax and feel like they can't get away from those patterns of the past. And God, I, there are no words that I can speak to bring any order to their chaos, but your spirit does that, and so... God, we just, we just, I just pray that over this service, over the first service, over those people that are watching online, would your spirit just come and bring the gospel deeper into our hearts. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for your word. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.